Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. First of all, thank you guys so much, so much sincerely as I look out the windows here of my office sitting across from my guest, David Goldman, who is going to be amazing. And I'll explain a little bit about him in a second. But I just want to tell you guys, every time I think about this podcast and I see the things that have happened and the people that have done the favor to come in here and sit down and give their time to talk about their stories. I also think about all the emails and all the correspondence that you have sent that have been so, so incredible from all walks of life and businesses to know that something like this makes such an impact that it just means a lot. And it's all I wanted to do to be able to do that. And again, I'm I'm thankful for all of you. I will also say one shameless plug that if you are ever on my website, barrycats.com slash podcast, and you see an Amazon banner and you ever feel like getting any merchandise, it doesn't cost you anything extra. Just click on it and a few extra shekels from your purchase somehow, some way goes to the Barry Cats kids jewish college fund so that would be wonderful if you do that again doesn't cost any extra money for you but it's a nice gesture for you supporting this podcast and i appreciate it shameless anyway as i sit across from my guest today david goldman i always look at my guests and presently he is the ceo 
of Comedy Time Network, but we're going to talk about all the different things he's done in his life, which involved agenting and managing and producing and now running one of the largest portals for comedy content in the world. But I'm reminded of a person he used to represent when he was an agent who was a big part of my life and shaping me as far as the knowledge of what could be possible in comedy. And that was Andrew Dice Clay, or as his mom called him, Andrew Silverstein. And I'd heard a lot about Dice when I was working in Boston running comedy clubs. And when you're in Boston doing comedy, the whole theme of comedy in Boston was a working class, cerebral kind of comedy. Yes, there were people who swore, and yes, there were people who did jokes that weren't necessarily the kind of material that you'd want to watch with your grandmother. But for the most part, you had people like Stephen Wright and Paula Poundstone and Jonathan Katz, who created Dr. Katz. And you had the Jimmy Tingles, who did the political humor. And you had the Steve Sweeney's, who did local comedy and characters from the area. But it was a more Barry Crimmins, who there was just a film done on him that's fantastic. They all had an incredible point of view. But they never went so far as to go really, really, really blue. Um, and I don't know, that was just the tone of the area. And we'd heard about Dice Clay, and you'd heard rumors, and you didn't really know what to think about things. And there was a comedian that was very close and near and dear to my heart back then named Lenny Clark, who you might know. Uh, he was a cast member on a show called Lara Kett. And most recently, he was a series regular on Dennis Leary's Rescue Me. And Lenny was a kind of guy who had his own show in Boston, and he would be bigger than life. He ran for mayor. He could make anything funny. He's just a great politician, a great comedian, a great wordsmith. And I remember getting the call that Lenny Clark was being booked for the HBO Young Comedian special with Rodney Dangerfield. And he and his brother invited me and gave me a ticket to the show. And I was so honored that they invited me and I drove to New York. And the way the Young Comedian specials work, if you don't know, back then, it was a very strange format because Rodney Dangerfield would host every other year. And this was the year that Rodney Dangerfield was hosting at his own club, Dangerfield's. And Lenny Clark went on first after Rodney did a great job. And then there was Barry Sobel, who you might recall had a very famous routine where he would repeat only the punchlines of jokes, and they would go on for like three minutes. Very funny young man. He also was one of the few white comedians ever to do the Apollo successfully. Carol Liefer was also one of the comedians on the show. And then the next comedian on the show was Andrew Dice Clay. But I remember being in the lobby beforehand and seeing him come in with the leather jacket and the cowboy boots and the hair quaffed the perfect way. And he was larger than life, incredible. And he walked in with this beautiful red-headed woman, one of the most beautiful women I'd ever seen in my life. 
And he came up to me and he started talking to me and he was very cordial and nice. Yeah, I guess he'd heard of me from Boston where I was. And all of a sudden the maitre d' who'd been there for many, many years brings over some flowers. And they said, these are for you, Andrew. And he opens up the card and it says something like, Dear Dice, congratulations on Young Canadian Special. I hope you do really well. Love, Mitzi. And he looks at the card, and he looks at me, and he looks at everybody else, and he says, fuck Mitzi Shore. And he throws the card away and says, take these flowers away from me. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, this is the place where he started. This is the place where he's from. But obviously, there's certain politics about comedy that I don't understand, and comedians and comedy club owners. And it was my first taste of the angst between those two. And then I got my first taste of something else, which was watching Dice go on stage. And where I thought a show was at, just sitting there, seeing a show where one comedian after the other, including Rodney Dangerfield, were killing. And I thought to myself, wow, this is great. And then Dice went on, and it was like you were pulling a car into a fifth, sixth, and seventh gear. I'd never seen anyone kill in my life that hard. And the jokes that he were doing were about girls giving him oral sex under the table and ejaculating on their hair. And, and people were going crazy. And I was sitting in the front row on the side, and I was watching him right from the side. And across my eye line on the other side were two beautiful women sitting down watching the show. And every dirty joke he did, the dirtier it was and the bluer it was, they laughed harder and harder and harder. Almost like a, a Def Jam concert. And I thought to myself, wow, I never knew that you could do blue humor and it would be accessible to anyone but men. But he proved in that moment that if you could do intelligent blue humor and tap into a lane that no one else was tapping into, that you could create something, a groundswell so large that it just moved the room. But then I thought to myself, I'm the only person in this 200, I'm one of 200 people in this room. And this is going to go on HBO. And it's up to America to decide what happens. All these comedians are going to be on. And everybody's going to be exposed to it. But I can't imagine that America won't rally around this guy. And sure enough, a guy who had never done The Tonight Show, had never done Letterman, had never been given any kind of chance on any television show, was shunned by everybody. But Rodney Dangerfield gave him this shot for six or seven minutes. And after that, Andrew Dice Clay did something that no other comedian has done before or since or during. He was able to sell out arenas for 12 straight years from 1988 to 2000. He could sell out Madison Square Garden. And so the lesson I took from it was sometimes you're in your own area of your job or work and you hear about somebody who's doing something a little bit different 
And it's easy to look at it and say, oh, well, you know, he's just doing blue humor or he's just doing that or he's just doing this and not being able to witness what it was. But then if you go and witness something and you see something really doing and you believe it for yourself, then it makes you realize all along, wherever you are, whatever job you're in, if you can figure out something to do and create a lane for yourself that's unique and special and different than anybody else and not worry what anybody else has to think and don't self-destruct along the way, you will take things to the most incredible levels of success that you've ever experienced in your life. Hey everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business, I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Here we go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Here we go. You fucking firing me up, cats. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. We're going to introduce our guest today, which I'm very excited, David Goldman. So I'm going to give him the proper introduction again. It's going to be long, but it's going to be good. You're going to enjoy this because this guy is unlike any other person I think I've ever interviewed on the show. And you're going to see why right now. David Goldman is the founder and CEO of the Comedy Time Network, a market leader in the production, licensing and distribution of short form comedy content for mobile and broadband applications. He began his entertainment career as actually a lawyer and then worked at the William Morris Agency, where he represented directors, actors, and musicians. He was vice president of the Motion Picture Department and head of the Motion Picture Directors Division. He later served a similar function at a competing agency, one of the largest in the country, ICM. His agenting clients included Will Smith, 
Mick Jagger, Kurt Russell, Roland Emmerich, Rennie Harlan, Billy Idol, The Beach Boys, and David Lee Roth. Goldman founded Comedy Time actually while functioning as president and CEO of his next venture, Power Entertainment, one of the Hollywood's leading management and production companies at the time specializing in comedy. Goldman founded Power in 1999 and sold his interest in the company in 2005. But during his tenure at the company, his clients included such established comedic talent as The Second City, Martin Lawrence, Eugene Levy, John Leguizamo, Nick Cannon, Craig Kilborn, Cheech Marin and Tommy Chong, Jeff Dunham and SNL and Late Night's Seth Meyers, Fred Armisen and Kenan Thompson. While at Power, Goldman produced half-hour television under production deals at both 20th Television and Touchstone. He produced the UPN hit show One on One, which is now in syndication. Goldman, a lawyer and member of the California Bar, also crafted strategic partnerships for Power in film, CDs, DVDs, and online positioning as one of the primary content providers to America Online. His company, Comedy Time, began as the comedy channel for Sprint TV in 2004 and under his leadership has become a market leader in production and distribution of premium short-form comedy content and cable over-the-top services. The company has also produced over 300 half-hour episodes for various cable networks and for Hulu. He's created digital partnerships for Comedy Time that include AOL, Yahoo, Netflix, YouTube, MSN, Verizon, Fios, Dish Networks, Amazon, Samsung, and Vessel. In addition to the main Comedy Time brand, he launched vertical comedy brands aimed at women, Latinos, Asians, and urban audiences. He also created a branded mobile channel for Lionsgate Entertainment, that was honored with both Media Week's Media Plan of the Year Award and the Jack Meyer Gold Agency Award. His overall studio producing deals have included ones at Viacom Productions, 20th Television, and ABC Disney. A graduate of UCLA, please welcome my man, David Goldman. And thanks for having me. I'm a real fan of the show, so it's great to be here. That's hard to believe that, that you listen to these shows. I do. I uh, I was uh, listening to Larry Miller. <laughs> I listened to Gavin Pallone. I listened to Eric Tannenbaum uh, and a whole bunch of other ones. I really appreciate I actually, I actually feel like I get to know these guys, even though I, I know a lot of them. I don't really know them until I hear them on your show. I'm speechless because it's always really hard to when you sit across from somebody and they say that and you just think to yourself, my God. It, it actually is doing something that people like, you know, like to listen to. So I'm, I'm so glad about that. I'm sorry for the long, boring introduction. That's okay. You know, it, it makes me think maybe I've been around too long. <laughs> There's too much to talk about. You have so many stories and so many things to talk about, but I always like to do, I hope you don't mind, I always love to go way, 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 way back to the very beginning of where you grew up. And you have a really unique area of the country where you grew up and I thought I'd have you talk about it to our audience and and share with them what you went through growing up the area where you lived in and what your first impetus was to getting into the entertainment business 
Okay, well, uh, it all started in Coney Island at the Coney Island Projects. Yeah, when you hear about the projects, that's where I lived. I didn't even and know there was a Coney Island Projects. There is. It's not as, I don't think, I don't know what it's like now, I don't think it was as bad as some of the other projects, but it was still pretty, you know, it could be pretty rugged. You know, to me, I probably, probably got interested in entertainment really with, with music, you know. It's like... I think the Beatles sort of like just got me hooked on on music, and then I, you know, Brooklyn was a long way from Manhattan, especially Coney Island. Uh, it was the last stop on the train, you know. But um, I used to go to Manhattan, and I used to like go to the um, record labels and publishing companies, and they used to give me all kinds of free shit, you know. They give me the pictures and um, the. Um, you know, the song sheets and stuff, and um, I just felt like I just really wanted to be in this business somehow. How old were you then? Oh, I probably was going to Manhattan and doing that when I was, I don't know, 12 or 13, something like that. So back then your parents just let you ride into Manhattan on your own at 12 or 13? You know, back then, that used to happen, yeah. It was the, you know, it was the only way to get around, and you take the train, and... I don't know if things were safer then or just that um, my parents didn't have a lot of control over me and I just did whatever I wanted. But, yeah, I used to go out there and go with my buddies and get, you know, just kind of a taste of, of, of getting close to that world, you know. Um, I actually went to uh, try and see the monkeys outside when they're staying at the... Um, I'm going to be interviewing Mickey Dolan soon. Oh, he's he's a trip. I've... Uh, well, I, I know him a little bit because we used to represent them later years at uh, William Morris. But um, I used to go, they were staying at the Warwick Hotel, which is the same hotel the Beatles stayed at. And um, I remember trying to, like, see them or meet them. Um, I was too young to get to Manhattan when the Beatles were there. But um, I actually did see the Monkees at Forest Hills when they played with Jimi Hendrix opening as the third act. And, wow. Uh, yeah, and that was the last time he ever toured with the Monkees. He actually walked out he, like he was getting booed. He threw his guitar off the stage and stormed out. And years later, because I was at William Morris, we represented the reunited Monkees, Sands, Michael Nesmith. And uh, I was telling Davy Jones that story. And he said, that's the last time we ever saw him. <laughs> but it was, well, it must have been difficult for Jimi Hendrix because he's going on stage, and here's a guy who basically his whole life is music, and he's opening up for a group of guys who were child actors who were put together for a television series and then became one of the biggest bands of the time. So it's very odd. Yeah, it was, it, it was the wrong audience for him. I mean, he was coming from... London where he was a god and that's where Mickey Dolenz had seen him and invited him and here he was playing for like 12 year olds who never nobody ever heard music like that before it was an assault on your eardrums you know if you were used to uh, listening to the monkeys it's incredible so Coney Island now since I haven't been back there and since the parades that I used to go to has it been all renovated and is all refurbished and rebuilt or is it still a hellhole? You know, I haven't been back there either, but the last I heard was that it all got bought up by Russians who were opening a resort and that they've closed the rides and the, uh, you know, the amusement parks. And that's all, there's like 12 blocks that it can be developed and become like, you know, an Atlantic City type casino paradise. 
Now, when you were there growing up, because you remember those old, you know, sometimes you'd go into a poster shop in New York that had the old photographs and that you'd pass off as art, I guess. And there'd be photos of the beaches of Coney Island and literally there'd be thousands and thousands of people and not even a clean piece of sand to sit on. Was it like that when you were there as a kid or was it past that? No, it was like that. It was like, you know, Fourth of July weekend, there would be wall-to-wall people and blankets and um and i remember even like you know to try and walk back to the boardwalk and avoid the hot sand when you're barefoot you're just walking on people's blankets the whole time and uh yeah that's just the way it was people when i came out here actually i was amazed on the west coast the first beach i ever went to was santa monica which over here is a crowded beach i I couldn't believe how few people there were compared (laughs) to coney island yeah, you don't see if you ever see an old picture of that, it's just it's just insane. So okay, so then you go to college, uh, but you go to college on the West Coast, right? Yeah, I went to uh, UCLA. You go to school for law later on, and then you decide that you want a career and get a job at an agency. So what happens next? Well, I actually practiced law briefly, and I realized that I didn't like the paperwork, but I liked the deal making part, and I decided that I wanted to be an agent. And what happened next is, um, you know, you have a couple of choices. One is you can go to the mailroom, which a lot of guys who were lawyers when I was there did, actually. Now, for for those in our audience that haven't read the famous books, could you explain to our audience, which is great coming from somebody who actually knows intimately, the whole process behind the mailroom and the whole philosophy of it from somebody who has no idea what a mailroom in a big agency means and what the actual symbolism is and the process you have to go through. I am uh, going to tell you exactly the way I used to tell the trainees, the potential trainees, when I interviewed them. Because I actually, when I did get the gig at William Morris, I ended up working with the CEO of the company. And the first thing he did was give me the whole training program to supervise. So That was Walt Zifkin. That was Walt Zifkin, yeah. So I used to actually have to give the whole spiel and actually ultimately choose who got in and who didn't. Tell our audience the whole spiel. I would would pretend we're all uh, bright-eyed people who just got the gig at William Morris and we know we're making minimum wage and we're starting in the mailroom, but we have no idea what that means. Well, what that means is that um, since there is no school on how to be an agent, or, and who knows, maybe there is now, but there wasn't back then, and there wasn't really um, a lot of information on the entertainment industry that, that was available in school. So the only way to really learn the process was to work in it and in the agency business, you know, everything flows through there. It's the sort of it's the center of, of everything that happens in film, television, music. Um, so as a trainee, you would start in the mailroom and the theory of it was that you're gonna learn through osmosis all these um, all these bits of information that you're gonna pick up in the hallway that you are going to see when you're back then photocopying in the mailroom. Um, getting to know the agents or getting becoming aware of what they do. Um, the the way it works is really it's um, you know it's fairly political in the sense that what you are trying to do is 
develop relationships with agents who are going to gravitate towards you and ultimately rescue you from the tra- from being either in the mailroom or the next step, which is dispatch, where you're delivering. How do you form the relationships when you're stuck in the mailroom? You start asking agents if you can work on their morning desk. And basically, actually, you don't even ask agents. You ask their assistants. So there's a hierarchy of power. So my assistant, when I was an agent, would choose and say, who, who got to work on my morning desk. And also, you know, if I came in early, there'd be a guy there that she chose and we would it seems like it's obvious to all of us but your regular assistant the hours that they worked was their starting time was what time and their ending time was what time and the morning desk required uh the person to show up at what time to what time so morning desk you know i would generally have somebody maybe from seven thirty or 8 o'clock till maybe around 9.30 or so, and um, my assistant might get there at around 9 o'clock, and so there'd be two of them at my desk for a while before the um, morning person had to go uh, do other responsibilities in connection with working in the mailroom, or, you know, the next step after the mailroom was called dispatch, which is basically delivering packages all over town, which was less desirable than working in the mailroom. Did you uh, use your own car as an employee or did you use their car? Dispatch had their own cars. You had dispatch cars. And the uh, reason why the trainees didn't like that is because it took them out of the building sometimes all day, so they couldn't really be working it. Now, when I used to give the spiel to the... Um, you know, potential agents, the trainees, I used to explain that this really is like a microcosm of the universe once you actually become an agent because you do have to make those relationships and you do have to uh, sell people on yourself. And a large, to a large degree, it's, re- it's really true. I mean, the kids, it's a Darwinian state of nature, I guess. The kids who have it generally rise to the top. They're undeniable. You know, they're working hard. <laughs> I've heard that They've word got- before. Yeah, they're working hard, they've got the hunger, and they are doing everything it takes. Now, I've had other kids who can't hack it. I had kids cry in my office. They can't believe how poorly they're being treated, the lack of appreciation. Um, You know, agents are, you know, when they're in the moment, they are just really busy, and and generally, they're they're not that cognizant, you know, of... um, sort of uh the kid gloves and the hand holding you know it's just but a lot of kids you know they're they're just not used to that and they uh they they felt unappreciated or you know it just wasn't their thing you know and other kids just breeze right through it you know keep on doing what needs to get done because they have their eye on the prize so when you we'll get back to your starting at william morris in a second but i want to just talk about the mailroom did you always notice the person who, like, the minute you come in contact with somebody in that mailroom, like, may make eye contact and exchange, like, a few words, do you know immediately when somebody is going to make it and somebody isn't? Or have there been times where you've misjudged somebody who was crying in a bathroom and then they went on to become the level of somebody like Tony Howard? I mean, have you, have you witnessed people who you thought this person is never going to make it and they became a great agent and have you witnessed people who you thought were going to be amazing agents and they just 
quit like three days later? Well, I would say that generally my instincts were right about who were going to be good agents, you know, great agents, Um, because they just kind of stand out. But sometimes those guys are so full of themselves that they they're, they're too smart for their own good. They're you know the arrogance gets the better of them, or they you know they they make a stupid move. You know that just where they either leave because they they don't have the patience, or they um, just do something boneheaded. You know that gets them kicked out, even though they still might have been a great agent, but they just piss somebody off too badly. You know a, a great agent very often is brazen, and a great agent very often. Uh, is not the most sensitive person. If you're too sensitive, it's really a detriment, you know. It's like, because you're knocking down doors all day long. So I would say that generally I know who's got stuff, you know, barring any unforeseen kind of um, circumstances where, where, where something just happens. There are surprises, though, in terms of the quiet ones. And the guys, you, you, you don't see them being, you know, this loudmouth kind of aggressive, knock the wall down type guy, but they're sort of that slow and steady wins the race. They get all the work done. They are responsible and they do it in a different way. And yeah, there are some people who have been very, very successful. Tell me somebody who was just, you know, again, not like the type AAA personality not the guy who you thought was going to be that Gavin Pallone type who was going to break through, just somebody who was just a regular guy and he used his energy to still make it. All right. Well, if we're going to name names in a positive way, I will mention Mark Itkin, who's a partner at WME right now, who is the uh, now the head of what's called unscripted programming, used to be called reality. It's one of the biggest reality agents in the world. Absolutely. And Mark um, was a lawyer, you know, and he was working at a pretty pretty good law firm, too. He's at Mitchell, Silverberg, and Nutt, which is a major firm, took an incredible salary reduction. And big, big lesson here is because a lot of people always tell you, should you take the money or should you go with what your passion is? And that's another example of go with what your passion is. Yes. And he, um, you know, he's, he was, a you know, he's, he's a guy who's, you know, a button down guy. He's even keel, very level, you know, and, um, just, you know, hung in there, went into an area at the time that was not sexy. It was like, uh, television syndication when he got into it was not really a super sexy area, you know, um, Plus also one thing to note about Mark and everybody who comes along, we're going to talk about you too in terms of this, is that people don't think about it, but you have to, to get to be the president of that department, and ultimately I believe now he's a partner or a junior partner. He has to be some kind of partner he, he, at the firm. He's a partner. He's on the board of directors. Yeah, board of directors. So he's a partner at the firm. In order to get there, you're looking up from your mailroom and you're looking at the imaginary pie chart or hierarchy chart of who's at the top, who's under them, who's under them, who's under them. And then you realize you are at the fucking bottom. You are the you are you are where the gophers and the roots from the trees and the climb to the top is daunting. 
But if you believe in yourself, you know eventually you start going through and you start making people feel safe around you. They don't really realize that you're a threat. And then one by one, you start picking people off and people leave or they get fired or whatever and you get promoted. And then before you know it, you're in that position and it's too late for the people around you to stop the momentum that you have to get to that point. And, and that's what happens. I remember uh, a great showrunner who ran a show called Kate and Alley. His name was Bill Persky. He once told me that his scripts were delivered by two mailroom guys. And every time they delivered the scripts, he was scared of them. And they were mailroom people. And it was Michael Eisner and Barry Diller. Well, he's very perceptive. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so you get the William Morris, you're, you're working under uh, the CEO, then what happens? How do you move up? Well, what happened was, I mean, I was in a pretty good position had I wanted to continue on that track, you know, to it was an administrative position. And if I hung in there, uh, you know, until the CEO, back in those days, you had to die to leave the William Morris agency, <laughs> like everybody just hung in forever can i just uh, say this in new york one of the most wonderful and almost monumental things in the william morris agency that you see in new york when you go it's now in like a a, a glass case like the mona lisa but it's like a book that all the clients used to sign as they came in throughout time of the hundred years of the agency and it's this amazing thing that's there that i don't think any other agency has well, no other agency has that history. The only one that came close was MCA, but, you know, it uh, had to close, uh, you know, under the antitrust decree um, when they elected to go and become a studio instead. So it is the oldest agency. And um, anyway, but, but to answer your question, um, you know, I could have hung in, you know, until my boss no longer wanted to be the, the CEO, you know, and go on that track. But I... Um, I really just had to ask. I just basically had to say to them that I, re I came there wanting to be an agent. They wanted me to do this other thing. They thought I was the perfect person to work in the office of the CEO. But I still wanted to be an agent, and I felt I'd be good at it. And I had to have that conversation with Walt. And, uh, and he's a very gracious guy. He didn't yell or get crazy or anything. And to his credit, he let me do it, but he said he had concerns, you know, you know, did I, did I really think I would be a good salesman, you know, and, uh, what makes me think I'm going to be a successful agent? And, um, what was your answer? I just basically felt that I could, I, I, I saw it in my head. I, I knew I creatively, I knew that I had my finger on the pulse and, I just felt like I had to try, and that's basically what I said. We'll never know until I, I'll never know until I try. So, what was your first thing that happened to you as an agent where you actually went home that night and said to yourself, "I can do this. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be able to do this successfully." Okay. Well, my boss first told me that I couldn't become an agent until I replaced myself in that job. So I had to interview guys to take my job, um, but. Before that happened, right, now I'm fighting for my life, okay? So I'm going from management to being an agent, 
and having no clients and someone has to want me in their department. And it's, it was a weird thing back then between um, management and agents at the Morris office. It was like, and when uh, you say management, you mean the people who run the administration, the administration, right? So, not, not theatrical. Management. That's right. In the agent's minds, they were kind of like on the other side, if you will, there was two sides. So for me to cross over was unprecedented and also quite difficult because people didn't quite trust me. Some people actually thought agents and, and these are senior agents and department heads thought it was some kind of a charade where I was there to get information and bring it back to management. That's how, you know, paranoid the minds were. But I realized the only way that I was going to survive was to bring in some uh, big clients, you know, do some big game hunting. And this is how brazen I was back then. Uh, Mike Love of the Beach, that's how I got my first client, Mike Love of the Beach Boys, uh, you know, he was mostly traveling, but he had an apartment literally across the street from the Morris office on El Camino Drive. And I went over to his apartment, rang his buzzer, he let me up, knocked on his door, he invited me in and told him why he should be with the William Morris Agency. Where was he? He, at the time... Um, I think that they were with um, ICM. I think that's where they were at the time. Um, so he lets you up. You're sitting in his apartment. Now, what's he doing in an apartment on El Camino in Los Angeles and Beverly Hills when he can be in a house on the water? Well, he is a resident of Nevada, uh, and he's got an incredible house, at, like, you know, that really fancy part of Tahoe. I forget what they call it. But all, all the stars live. So, so this is just like a crash pad, you know, for when he was in L.A. Um, but um, anyway, I, I, I basically said, look, the Beach Boys are a great live act, but at the moment you don't have a record deal. And, you know, you haven't had a hit in a long time. You need to get something on the airwaves. I'm going to get you into a hot motion picture soundtrack. This was the era when soundtracks in the 80s were really like blowing up, you know, big movies like Urban Cowboy or Saturday Night Fever, you know. And so um, anyway, uh, it took a lot of doing and a lot of pursuing, but he wanted that soundtrack. And so, um, you know, long story short, the end result was Kokomo, which I did deliver for him, which was their first number one hit in 23 years. And um, it was a real it was a real process because, first of all, the song was... Um, not something that was readily handed to me. You know, I had to sort of track down a song. I keep trying to get a song. And Bruce Johnson told me about something. He was in the group that he had demoed with Terry Melcher and John Phillips from the Mamas and the Papas. And it was this song, and I should give it a listen. Terry Melcher was the um, producer of the Beach Boys at the time. But anyway, so I, um, I tracked it down. I liked it. And, uh, you know, I talked to Mike Love, and he said, okay, we'll, we'll demo it. It was really, it wasn't even completed yet. Mike wrote the rest of the lyrics. It was only the first set of lyrics and, and the verse, of, uh, the verse and then the chorus. And um, they demoed it, and um, I, sub I called Disney to submit it to um, the head of music there. It was Chris Montan, and uh, he's still there. And uh, he said, you know, you can see he's the nicest guy in the world. He said, you can send it, but 
you know, Beach Boys aren't really radio and Electra Records is involved and they want this to be a hot soundtrack, the chances are like a thousand to one that we'll ever use it. Now, parenthetically, their manager at the time was, was tearing my head off for even going through this process because he literally was screaming at me because he said, do you realize we spent $1,600 to, to cut this demo? You're never going to sell this. And I'm going to make you eat that $1,600. That's what he says to me. He's, nice, worried, right? he's worried about $1,600. $1,600. Um, he's worried about basically 80 T-shirts that he sells or whatever yeah, is 800 I mean, this is what I, as if it's not tough enough. So that's what, so, so, so that's what I'm up against. But um, anyway, Chris called me and he said, you know, I, I played it in my office. And uh, like assistants started coming over and going, is that the Beach Boys? And all of a sudden I had a crowd in my office. Everybody was digging this song. So I sent it on to Roger Donnelly, who was the director. And uh, he liked it, wants to use it. And Electra Records, you know, they had the exec had like a shit fit because she didn't she didn't want this in the movie she didn't want the beach boys they weren't hip you know they weren't hot and um so they released another single instead as the first single off the cocktail soundtrack which was like a double album and it died and i kept saying to them kokomo is your hit release kokomo and you won't believe this either and they said well we'll release it but we're not doing a music video and this was in the 80s the year of mtv so uh, the Beach Boys kicked in ten grand, and Disney kicked in ten grand, and they did this, you know, kind of somewhat cheesy-looking video at a hotel. You remember with John Stamos playing the drums uh -huh. and the girls, you know, sort of uh, dancing hula style, and um, you know, the rest is history. It went, it went to number one. Cocktail soundtrack went to number one as a result, and it drove. Uh, like sales of about three million copies, and then they released a bunch of other songs like "Don't Worry, Be Happy." And for the audience, "Cocktail," the movie with Tom Cruise. Correct. Unbelievable. So that's your first thing, and now the people at William Morris are taking you seriously. Yeah. Once I signed the Beach Boys, I mean, I should say nobody, uh, because I was coming from management, nobody wanted me in their department. I was in this really precarious place of being this free-floating agent without a department uh, but once i like when i signed the beach boys and i i did the you know the kokomo deal and things started happening i got an invitation to join the casting department uh motion picture casting and that that was my first official affiliation with a department and then uh you know proceeded to start signing basically anything that moved that could make me money because I still had to build a business, you know, and it was probably really good training. So your next, your next client that you did something for that made everybody in the company say, what the fuck is going on here? Who the fuck is this guy? That would probably be Rennie Harlan. Um, so talk about this. A lot of people don't know about this, about Rennie Harlan, the director who kind of looks a little bit like me when I had longer hair, much better looking version of me. Rennie Harland uh, was a director that was on the rise. And if I'm not mistaken, Mr. Goldman, there was something that happened with you that really made your agency take notice of you and also the rest of the agencies and some bigger entities as well. Why don't you talk about that? Okay, well, Rennie uh, did Nightmare on Elm Street 
I, I had put him into Nightmare on Elm Street 4. When he had signed with me, he'd done um, a Finnish movie called Born American. And Now, normally, just so our audience knows, this is how it works in terms of the agencies and film projects that are going on. What happens is films get set up at certain studios in town, and many of them have a director already attached. But a lot of them happen where a great script is sold to a studio and they're looking for a director. And these things that the agencies are called open director assignments. And once you find out about it through the channels that you have in your, in your company, it's your job as an agent to fight to get at least the least a meeting between your director and the studio to share their vision after reading the script of how they feel that their take is more special and unique than anybody else's and how their take and how they're going to bring things to the movie is going to take this movie to the highest levels and bring them the most money. And that's the job of the agent to try to do it. And so when you have a director that isn't really, nothing's really going that big at the time, the open director assignments that are the ones that are probably easier to land than others are sequels to movies that are the fourth, fifth, sixth, or seventh sequel to a movie, unless you're talking about like Fast and Furious, which those sequels are huge, or Pirates of the Caribbean. But normally if you're doing Leprechaun 7, or as I just mentioned, the aforementioned title of Nightmare on Elm Street, chances are that one isn't going to be the one that's going to take anybody to the next level unless you do something really special with it. And that's sort of what happened. Uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 4 was, um, did like $60 million, which was huge back then for a Nightmare on Elm Street movie, which, you know, speaking of sequels, led me to do a deal for Rennie for, I think the first deal we did was for Aliens 3, following in, you know, Jim Cameron's footsteps. And, and then ultimately Die Hard 2, which, you know, did happen. Um, but uh, prior to that, you, you you talked about Andrew Dice Clay before. Uh, we did Ford Fairlane with uh, with Rennie and Dice, and um, which was you know I, I think a really good movie, and that's sort of what got him Die Hard too. But um, a lot of people don't realize that Andrew Dice Clay is a great actor. He's a great dramatic actor. He's a great comedic actor. But sometimes what happens in our world and our view as people out there watching movies we also look at the internet and we also read what happens with people and how people are and not to lump andrew dice clay into a category but it's like the people whose stories are written about like the andy dicks or the tom arnold's or the andrew dice clays these guys when the red light goes on it's it's magic but unfortunately because of what we know about them or the stories we read or the things we hear they sort of give uh, us a different opinion of them and the people in the industry a different opinion of them and it's harder oftentimes for them to get a significant work in the future because of it well uh dice is a great actor i mean obviously the woody allen movie he did prove that uh more recently you know um Blue Jasmine, um, 
but anyway, uh, so so going back to Rennie, so before Die Hard came out, um, Mario Casar at Caracol Pictures wanted Rennie for an action project that they had called Gale Force. And the deal we ended up negotiating was the highest deal ever for a director at that time, which was $3 million. No director had ever received that. And that just sent the whole agency world and studio world reeling and rocking because all of a sudden the ceiling had been broken on director salaries, which, um, you know, other than like, you know, Steven Spielberg, who had like a huge ownership interest, no director was really making that kind of money. And even, you know, Spielberg told me at a party once when he, he was congratulating me on the Rennie Harlan deal. And he was telling me how his fee in a movie was only a million five. <laughs> so now um, Mario Casar was a guy he's been on this podcast and he had this great thing that he shared with uh, the audience where he said he just hated negotiation. He his whole thing was, ah, fuck it, I'll just pay, I'll overpay and let me move on. So I will make a little less money in the end. Let me just overpay, lock this guy down, and go on to the next thing. Because the time I spend going back and forth to get the fee down to, you know, 2.1 million, I'll have wasted like 25 hours of my time that I could be doing something else with. Let me just give him the fucking money and go. And that's what he did there. That's what he did. And uh, I love Mario Casar. Rennie loved Mario Casar. I mean, Stallone loved Mario. Uh, Arnold, everybody did because... He was he was that way. He was um, really a he was a top shelf guy when he was an executive, and you know we all loved him. But um, that particular deal disrupted the business essentially, and now you see directors getting all kind you know, all kinds of incredible money. But uh, that's sort of what started the whole thing. I mean, agencies spent. Uh, very long periods of time talking about the implications of that. And even at our, our own agency, people were going like Norman Jewison, who is a legendary director, saying, well, if Rennie is worth $3 million, I must be worth ten. How can you know? How come I'm not getting ten? And at the time, Sue Mengers was... Sue Mengers, one of the greatest agents in history, who you'll Google her and read some famous articles about her, how she really almost disappeared out of the consciousness of the agency world when she was so, so huge. It's, it's a fascinating story. Yeah, well, she was um, a mentor to me. She uh, Not during the height of her power, but kind of when she tried to make her comeback at William Morris. But she, So she's there when I'm there, and she's running the department, and she said to, like, Norman Jewison and these other directors, well, at least you're at the place that made that deal. <laughs> <laughs> and... Um, Anyway, that was uh, that was uh, sort of the story of what happened there. So before we move on, I want I want you to because there's so many things about the agency world that we don't get to talk about that often in this podcast, and I'm grateful that you're here. Let's just do this one more story about your relationship uh, with Will Smith and a project that you were very involved in that changed the face of his career as a film star. Okay. Well, I, I represented Will Smith, um, and he was uh, he was doing the Fresh Prince of Bel Air, and 
The first movie I ever put him in was called Made in America, uh, which was which was really like his first role in. Um, he had done a little, t- a teeny, teeny role in uh, Where the Day Takes You. It was a small independent, but Made in America was, um, you know, big budget film. It starred Ted Danson and Whoopi Goldberg, and uh, he played a supporting character in that. And um, Michael Douglas was telling me, he was a producer with On On Milshon on the movie, and he told me that um, uh, when they were on the set in San Francisco, um, they were shooting on the streets and um, there was like 300 teenage girls surrounding Will Smith. And um, he, at the time, you know, was the Fresh Prince and he was also a rap star at the time. And so he had a big following. And uh, I said to Michael Douglas, I don't know who the fuck this kid is, but I want to do another movie with him. <laughs> and so, um, you know, cut to... Um, this will come in. This is just going to be valuable later on in this story. Um, but Will and his management were very interested in him doing Six Degrees of Separation, um, which was a you know, very successful play on Broadway. And they were going to be doing a movie. MGM was doing it. It was going to be directed by Fred Skepsey. And, um, you know, I was pushing for Will to get the lead. And you know, it's kind of hard for people to believe this now because Will's such a huge movie star, but, you know, back then he wasn't. And, um, yeah, Fred didn't want to meet him. Said, you know, he's a sitcom star. You know, uh, this is like, this requires, this role is a really heavy role. I'm planning on using the same guy who did it on Broadway. And uh, I said, you have got to meet with him. Let him read. I'm telling you you'll become a believer, you know, once you get in a room with him. So he did. He agreed to meet him, and he said, he said to me, you know, he wasn't bad, but I'm still using the guy, and I'm blanking on his name. Uh, I don't want to say it wrong, but anyway, but he was going to use this guy who did it um, as a play, you know, and it was sort of dead, you know. I'd kind of done everything I could do. I'd pushed as hard as I... And by the way, Fred was a client. I was at ICM at the time. So it was kind of uncomfortable almost because here I am pushing so hard for Will. And then I've got his agent who's saying to me, back off already. He's not using them. So um, cut to MGM gets cold feet about financing what is in essence kind of an art movie not really that commercial, and sells off foreign rights to Arnon Milshan, same guy who produced Made in America, who said, I don't know who that kid is, but I want to do another movie with him. Well, you know where the story's going. <laughs> so I get on the phone, I call Arnon, I go, um, hey, I hear you're, uh, you came in for some of the financing on Six Degrees of Separation. And he said, yeah, I did. I said, well, you know who wants to do this movie? <laughs> And, uh, and I told him about Will and, um, you know, and I did a little bit of agenting on top of that where, uh, I said, you know, you have a choice here of using someone who's not very well known, who did it on Broadway, albeit a great actor or someone who is a rap star, stars in a top 10 TV show and has a huge following and who you like, who's worked for you before. 
so uh so what's it gonna be and he said i'm calling mgm i'm gonna tell him i'm only do i'm only financing this movie if will smith stars in it <laughs> I said perfect and uh anyway that's what happened and uh it was kind of the tail wagging the dog, you know. It was uh, potentially a little uncomfortable with Fred Skepsi. Um, but, you know, all's well that uh, ends beyond well. And I bet if you asked Fred um, the story, he would say that he thought Will Smith was just a great idea and he was going to give him his big break. <laughs> <laughs> Relationships, everybody. Uh, one thing that should be noted is that for those of you out there, one of the oddest things that you find that I found culturally in my time in this business, especially in comedy, is I'd like all the people out there to, after this podcast is over, to make a list of every heterosexual African-American comedian that has accepted and taken a gay role in any film or television project in the history of television. And call me or email me with that list because it's probably on your hand if you were in shop class with a bad teacher because I can't name one person other than Will Smith who has taken a role like that. And I remember all throughout my career, many of the clients that I've represented who were African-American would refuse to work a, a role that was gay. And I don't know uh, if it's a cultural thing or what it is, but it's, it's a fascinating thing that I've never quite really uh, understood, and maybe someday I will. But I want to keep going, David. So then you go to ICM, and why do you switch agencies? You're at the top of your game. You're the head of the motion picture director's division. You're the vice president of the motion picture department. You're obviously moving up to be highest levels of the company. Why do you switch to your competitor? It's a good question. You know, sometimes you just want to change. It's, it's hard to explain. Um, they, at the time, had arguably a, a better motion picture department. And um, it was, you know, kind of just an allure. It's hard, it's hard to explain. Jeff Berg can be very charismatic and persuasive, who was chasing me. Jeff Berg was there. the head of ICM at the time, and then later on, a couple of years ago, started a new agency here called Resolution, which has since folded. Yeah, so, um, it, you know, I mean, looking back, you're absolutely right. You know, at the time, it just sort of, Maybe it was just, in a way, kind of looking to change it up a little bit. You know, after you do a certain number of things in the agency business after a while, it becomes very repetitive. Hard to explain, but, you know, once you've made the big deals, once you've represented the big stars, it's sort of, to a large degree, the same thing over and over again. And um, I think I was just longing for a change. Now, uh, this is another thing you can offer to our audience, which is really valuable, unique information. A lot of times in the, the entertainment business, in the agency world, there are agents that move from one company to another. Like recently at CAA, there were a number of different agents, Jason Heyman, who represents Will Ferrell and Sasha Baron Cohen, 
and a number of different agents from CAA moved to UTA. And it happens often. From your perspective, you went from an agency that started all the agencies, William Morris, and then you went to an agency, ICM, that had been around for approximately 10 years at the time, maybe 15 years. What did you find was the difference between how ICM was run and what were the things about ICM that you thought were more positive in how they ran than William Morris? And what were some of the things that they, the agency that ICM did that you were like, man, I wish they did things like William Morris did? Well, back then, and I should preface this by saying that you know, ICM Partners is not the ICM I worked for, completely different management, you know, uh, and I think, you know, Chris Silverman is doing a fantastic job Chris over there. Chris Silverman is now the head of ICM now here, and he's is doing an incredible job. Um, but, you know, what William Morris did extremely well was um, make you happy to come to work every day in a very nurturing environment. And it was a great place to work. Um, ICM had certain levels of efficiency at the time that, um, you know, may have exceeded uh, what William Morris was doing in their motion picture department. Um, but because it, ICM had Steve Dontonville. Who is an incredible agent? He uh, was the, there. Yeah, he the, was amazing. The, the late, the late well, 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 that was another part of it, really. You know, in terms of, um, I mean, Ed and I were very close. And Ed represented, you know, Julia Roberts, Mel Gibson. Well, Ed and I were close at William Morris, and so when he left, and you know, and uh, went over to ICM, it was kind of a, it was a big um, sort of a loss. But uh, Ed was an incredible guy. Um, and yeah, I mean, they, they, at the time, ICM actually had a bigger list of movie stars. As a motion picture agent, it was um, a bit of a higher profile in that area at the time. So you move on to ICM. What's your title there? Um, same thing. I was vice president of motion picture department. And what happens there to lead you to believe that, you know what? This agency business is not where it's cut out. I want to go into management. Well, what happens is, and, and this is also just about, you know, uh, maybe not going through life on the same note, uh, and that's a personal choice, you know. I was a lawyer. I worked in management at the Morris office, then I became an agent. And I realized when I got to ICM, you know, being an agent wasn't so much uh, the ups, the downs, the likes, the dislikes weren't so much about the place. It's the same job. Uh, if you're at a large agency, whether you're at William Morris or you're at ICM, you know, you're dealing with your clients. But the business model is one where you can build up a client. You can work for somebody for five years and make no revenue from them, build them into something that explodes, and then um, they may decide they want to be at CAA. And that's a tough business model, um, tough to tough to sustain, you know. Um, you have to really have the attitude like you've got to keep them coming in because they're going to go out. And um, it wasn't really the way I like to operate. I like to really just focus on 
the clients I have versus the clients I have to get, anticipating the clients that are going to leave. Now, maybe it was karma because your first entry into the agency business was you poaching the Beach Boys away from ICM. Well, that could be, you know. I mean, well, that's part that's part of it, right? That is, uh, if, you, if you're dealing with established talent, they're somewhere. And, but that is the nature of the game, you know. It's, um, you know, somebody is somewhere, and um, unless they're, they're green and they're just starting out, you're their first agent. Um, but, but what I was looking for was to build assets, and I felt that if I did the management and production company route, that I could be building assets on the production side, in addition to still nurturing talent and maybe having a different kind of relationship with talent that was more personal than the agency relationship and working with agents in a different way. And so you meet with Robert Hartman and a group of people there. Now, Robert Hartman, for those of you who don't know, is a really amazing kind of unique individual in that he he owned several uh, improv comedy clubs and also owned a management company at the time. The name of it escapes me before it became Power Entertainment when David came on. So, And then you meet with him and you form a partnership with him for management and you change the name to Power Entertainment. And talk about that experience of going into management and going with new partners that you never were involved with before, which also involved Michael Green coming on who was from a company called The Firm at the time and now runs his own company called The Collective. Um, well, Robert was a great partner. You know, He's got his finger on the pulse, obviously, of comedy through the clubs. And uh, big client at the time was Jeff Dunham. Right. And, um, you know, and he had Pablo Francisco. And, um, but, you know, more importantly, you know, through the whole club environment, it was easy to source up and come in comedic talent. I mean, that was the theoretical principle of it, you know. And, uh, and it's true to a large degree, but, you know, the other part of it is that, I mean, how many comics really cross over, you know, and, and make it in film and television? You know, you have to, like, like pick up people who are real comedic actors like Eugene Levy and, and uh, you know, or Flex, uh, who I did the TV show with, you know, who was more actor, less stand-up. Yeah, know. Flex Alexander from New York. Yeah. Talk about the politics that goes on when you're running a company, and then I think a lot of people are privy to this. Things are going smoothly. Everything's going great. And then another person is brought on, which is Michael Green, who presents a different dynamic, a different uh, type of personality, different philosophy, and how it can sort of like affect things in a way that isn't necessarily the way you, your vision was. Well, you know, everybody, it's like marriages, you know. You know, it's a, a partnership is a very close relationship. And um, in order for the boat to move in the direction you want it to, all the oars have to be kind of rowing at the same time. And if um, someone has a different point of view, that's a key player. It's really hard to move things forward, I guess, is what I'd analogize it to. Yeah, and so before things went a little haywire, 
and we'll talk about it a tiny bit, and then we'll move on. Talk about how going there and sort of adding a different twist to things at that management company by bringing on Eugene sort of changed the face of how things were going there. Uh, talk about uh, a big thing that happened in your management company with him and uh, a project that he didn't want to do. Uh, well, that would be American Pie, which Eugene didn't even want to meet on. And this is where uh, management is tricky because, you know, we all are one phone call away from being fired as managers. Don't I know that? <laughs> I'm not even a phone call away. I'm an email away. I'm a text away. <laughs> right. <laughs> and uh, what do you do when a client doesn't even want to meet on a project that he's perfect for? Um, and where the directors are, you know, really high quality. You know, uh, it's, it's interesting because it's a lot easier when um, someone hasn't quite reached star status yet because if the non-star fires you, you're not going to actually lose that much income. But when the star fires you, uh, it could be half your, half your annual income out the door. So it's, um, you know, you try and be persuasive um, and at least get them to take a meeting, which is what I was successful in doing with Eugene. I mean, when he read American Pie, you know, the script was a little raunchy. And it could have gone a lot of ways, you know. I mean, he was seeing, you know, he didn't want to do like Porky's uh, or, uh, you know, one of those typical kind of teen sex comedies, uh, which this was not. And when he met with the directors, he realized that they had a vision, you know, and this thing was going to have a lot of heart and the heart came from the role of the dad. And um, I think that all, you know, played out in the film, although... No one ever really rested comfortably until they saw the finished product. And then, of course, it went on to be immensely successful. And in addition to all of the theatrical releases, Eugene uh, was the key player, the only one to keep doing the, uh, the straight-to-video releases. Did he ever take you aside and say, I was wrong about that one? Yes, he did. He did. He always would say, I was wrong. You know, Dave, I didn't want to do it. David made me do it. He, he would say that, yeah. He, nice. So he had a good memory, and that was gratifying. So take us through the move to going to a new kind of uh, direction, then agenting and managing and producing. Take us through how Comedy Time started and was formed and what's happening with the company. Okay, so, you know, the digital video craze... It hadn't yet really started. I mean, we'd had the, uh, you know, the Internet bust of, like, uh, early 2000s. And um, the biggest player in the business around 2002, 2003, when I got into this, was AOL. You know, I was, like, one of the uh, committee members for the HBO Comedy Festival, which I'm sure you probably were, too, Barry. You know, we all just get well. in a room and... And we had, we used to, um, Judy Brown, who worked at Power Entertainment, also uh, retained this position um, with the HBO Comedy Festival where she, she would go out and scout for them still. Yeah, she was like an executive consultant for them. Yeah. And she 
Judy Brown, for those of you who don't know, is a really great, great casting director, but also, unbelievably, is a really great manager and producer. So exactly. one of the few people who does uh, a lot of different things and wears a lot of different hats. Yeah, so she um, was working really closely with the festival still. And anyway, at the time, AOL and Time Warner were one company, and AOL decided to shoot the um, the festival, you know, and, and primarily the stand-up footage and air it and it did very well for AOL and um they wanted more of it and they asked us if at Power Entertainment if we could produce that for them and I really wanted to be in that space because I felt like that's where everything was going you know this was way before it was going there but um but I just wanted to be in that business so we did the deal with AOL and we became essentially their largest well, definitely their largest original comedy content provider, but maybe their largest original content provider, period. And so that was going on for about a year when I got this incoming call from um, a consultant for Sprint uh, who was consulting for Sprint and Moby TV. And they were going to be launching video on the phones, on Sprint phones, on cell phones, uh, which had not been done before. And they were going to be launching a whole service that was like, it looked like cable. It had a whole bunch of channels, you know, it had the Discovery Channel, the Learning Channel, Fox Sports. But they couldn't get Comedy Central because Comedy Central was owned by Viacom and Viacom wasn't sure about their digital strategy. And based on what we were doing for uh, AOL, they asked me if we would be able to create a comedy channel for them. And... Uh, you know, I threw out a number and they said, okay. So that was the beginning of Comedy Time, which started as the Comedy Channel for Sprint. And what was really interesting was that within three weeks of launching, it was their second most popular channel. So we were outperforming the Discovery Channel, outperforming <laughs> all these news channels who were all making a lot more money than we were. But the models were really good. They were paying some serious six-figure advances against so many cents per sub. And as time progressed, the subs were getting into the millions. So um, it was a good business. And from Sprint, uh, we got onto Verizon. We started powering all the comedy for Real Network Superpass, got onto Google Video. One thing just kept leading to another. And, um, you know, we were very well positioned in this, in this digital world that was evolving. It took a lot longer than anybody hoped and it's still not where it's going to be but essentially i just started creating a footprint um on any platform you know whether it was cable like we did a deal with dish we did a deal with fios uh smart tvs you know samsung sony etc um hulu vessel whatever the platform was roku xbox um we started just putting the channel there and anyway in the process of doing that because there was no one else to go to to do it you had to do it yourself if you wanted to be on uh, I learned a lot about distribution and over digital platforms which led me to uh, you know not only to do it for comedy time but when I showed other media companies the distribution I had for comedy time a number of them said to me, can you do that for us? So I created another business in digital distribution, which I'm currently 
uh, doing in partnership with a marketing company. So we do distribution and marketing of digital content. It's incredible. And it's been over 10 years the company has been out there and you have over how many hours of comedy footage in your library? Oh, well, well over a thousand. We could even have more, you know, if there was a reason to. Uh, I've dialed it down a bit since we started. But we shoot in New York, L.A., and Miami on a regular basis. And we shot sporadically all across the country. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. So... If you don't mind, I'd love to do like sort of a word of association with names of people in the business and whatever comes to your mind of something that, that you think would be inspiring or unique or a great story or something uh, interesting about the name that I... Okay. Go okay. ahead. All right. You should see the look on his face. It's almost like he's uh, he's getting that shot at the dentist. Yeah. Well, uh, have you done this with others, may I ask? Uh, yes, I have. It's oh, a big, okay. it's a big part of the podcast. It's a big part of the format. Okay, go well, ahead. I mean, in some cases, I don't do it, but for you, I think it, it fits. Martin Lawrence. Well, uh, talented comedian. That's not the first thing that comes to my mind, but uh, but he is talented, and I I hope he finds the right vehicle. You know, I felt the first thing that comes to mind is the most recent show he did with Kelsey Grammer, and I wish that they both had a better vehicle because they're so extremely talented. And tell us something, an experience or something to have with Martin that, that might be something that our audience might yeah, want I want to be clear about Martin. I didn't really, I, I wasn't the primary person on Martin. Power Entertainment represented him, but it was Michael Green who was his primary. No, I, I understand that, but you were there for a lot of the things. Uh, that all I remember is when we were trying to sign him, I had to buy him a $1,500 microphone as a gift because uh, Michael thought that would seal the deal. And <laughs> I think it did. And it did. There you go. You just write that off. <laughs> write that off. There from, you go. From the Christmas bonus. John Leguizamo. John um, was Jeff Goldenberg's client. But what I remember about John was actually when I was at ICM, I went to see Spicorama. Yes. First time I met John. One of John's great shows that he put up in New York. All right. So I'm in New York. He's at ICM. And I just figure I should go say hello after the show, right? So I go backstage and he is like naked, not even wearing underwear. Like when I walk into his dressing room. <laughs> Has that ever happened to you? <laughs> when you go to see a client, you knock and you come in. You're like, never God. happened. Larry Miller just told the story of how Frank Sinatra walked in and he was naked, completely naked. And literally had a full conversation with him, not saying one thing about being being naked. And then he leaves the room, and right before he is going out of the room, he turns around and he says something to the effect of, "Listen, uh, I hope that's not in the act." <laughs> something like that, that is hysterical. So he, he so he's completely naked. And he doesn't lock the door, and you walk in, and what happens? And happened? he's alone, you know? Uh, well, I didn't really you know, I didn't really know him that well. You know, it was kind of a little uh, it was a little awkward, you know? What do you do when you go backstage, and you like it, you tell the guy how great it was? No one ever gets tired of hearing that, right? That's right. And he's saying, are you talking about my unit, or are you talking about the show? <laughs> but uh, anyway, he, he was very cool. And, you know, and I had, you know, he's, he's, he's just a cool head. I mean, that's always been my experience with him billy idol billy idol is uh incredibly talented um 
in a way most people don't even know and really like a lot more brilliant than you would ever imagine because you see Billy Idol and you just think like punk rocker, you know, from, from the day. But a really very thoughtful um, and um, bright guy. Kurt Russell. Kurt is a man's man. Uh, and, uh, I mean, great actor, obviously. Um, and, um, but, you know, like, like an outdoorsman, you know, uh, rugged, very real, and not at all Hollywood or show business. Cheech and Chong. Do you do this with everybody or you go through their whole client list? Because uh, I don't want to do like a kiss and tell, but um, Cheech and Chong or uh, not that I'm doing it, Cheech and Chong or a trip. Well, because you got two different personalities. You got Cheech Marin, who is, is obviously crossed over from comedy into acting, and Tommy Chong, who really never crossed over into acting. All I can say is those guys, you know, when I first got together, when I first started representing them, I started with Cheech, and then, and they weren't together as Cheech and Chong. And then I got Tommy on board, and then I was trying to put Cheech and Chong together again, you sort know. Sort of resurrect the career. And, yeah, and, 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 and it's sort of like those guys are kind of like a couple that have been married too long. They love each other, but they... Uh, they, they they fight a lot, but they are they are hysterical when they're together, and they're not even doing their act. That's just the way it is, you know. So their comedy flows very naturally, and um, and for those of you who uh, have uh, been sort of isolated in a uh, a tank for maybe uh, many years, or you're too young to remember. Just do yourself a favor, and if you've heard it, revisit it, and you've never heard it, listen to it. The album that contains the famous Sister Mary Elephant on it, because uh, that, that routine changed my life in comedy. Incredible. Well, they're, they're incredible, and they're still uh, you know, just as funny today as they, as they ever were. But with Tommy, kind of like one of the experiences that, probably most studio executives or managers or agents are never going to have is uh, I set up a movie for Cheech and Chong at New Line with Larry Charles writing and directing. And in the midst of it all, under the Bush administration, uh, they came against Tommy for uh, selling bongs uh, across state lines. And he actually got arrested and sentenced by the federal government. It's pretty well known and most people are aware of it. But he ended up in Taft Prison. He had to serve time up there, uh, which is by Bakersfield. Anyway, Larry and I, you know, we're in the middle of developing this, this movie. And Cheech as well and, and Tommy. And here's Tommy who ends up in jail. But uh, we went up there on visiting day. For a development meeting, <laughs> which uh, very few people ever get to do. And so Larry and I drove up there, and Larry and I know each other. Larry grew up in the same... Uh, he didn't grow up in Coney Island. I met him when my family had moved to Brighton Beach, which was a little bit more upscale, but he um, he and I grew up together. So um, we had a lot of, you know, commonalities. And um, so we drove up there kind of reconnected and then we had our development meeting with Tommy. How many development meetings have a time limit 
and it ends with a guard knocking on the window. Yeah, uh, it was it was very interesting. What's more, even more interesting, is that Larry uh, he stayed close to a guy named Mark Lefkowitz, who we grew up with, who also had a friend in that same prison. And was and he asked me if Mark could come with us and say hi to his friend. I said, sure, you know, the more the merrier. So anyway, then it gets even more interesting because Tommy's, um, I believe it was his cellmate, but or else he was just there at the same time, was Jordan Belford, the Wolf of Wall Street. And so Tommy introduced me to him. Um, I mean, I didn't know the name Jordan Belfort till afterwards, and then I read that he was Tommy's um, roommate. But I remember Tommy introducing me to this guy and going, you know, he's here for, like, embezzlement or something, but he's really a cool guy. And uh, so it was like old home week, you know. It was just, uh, you know, and we got our work done, and it was uh, an interesting experience. Awesome. David Lee Roth. Uh, one of the funniest guys you'll ever meet, um, and ever the showman, and um, you know, it was just like working with him was a real privilege. You know, uh, I still quote him all the time. He used to have these David Lee Roth sayings. Um, he used to say, um, "Money can't buy happiness, but it'll buy you a yacht, so you can cruise up right next to it." <laughs> and and uh, then he says, not whether you win or lose, but how good you look. It really counts. <laughs> Stuff like that. But, he, you know, he had a million of them. Those are just the ones I remember. But really a smart guy. Seth Myers. Seth, um, really nice human being and a, um, I mean, obviously very talented. When I first started working with Seth, he was in an improv duo called Hiccups and Pickups, where he was working with a woman on, it was all relationship-based comedy. And Seth was always really grounded, really loyal client. Um, and um, I still email him from time to time. Awesome. Mick Jagger. Well, what can you say about Mick Jagger? That was like my dream come true the day I started representing him. You know, I just grew up idolizing him, and then I couldn't believe the confluence of events that sort of led me to be his agent. But, uh, you know, I never really made any money with him because every time I would actually get him a movie, he would, you know, and he really, he'd really want them. But then he'd say uh, things like, uh, you know, I got to write songs with Keith or we're getting ready for a tour and just say, Mick, I'm not doing this for the money. I'm just doing this for the love of rock and roll. <laughs> and uh, I said, just, just remember me when the tour comes around, you know, and, uh, Get me that laminate backstage pass. I love him as an actor. Was it the man from Elysian Fields? I love that. Yeah, he's actually he's actually pretty good. You know, the biggest problem I would have, you know, in terms of getting him roles was that he was so identifiable as Mick Jagger that um, directors who all wanted to meet him, by the way, would um, feel like he, he might take the audience out of the movie because everybody's focused on the fact that that's Mick Jagger. The great part about being an agent and representing Mick Jagger is the fact that you never have to have you never have to fight to get a meeting. No, you never do, uh, and anybody will meet him. Finally, Will Smith. Will is a super positive guy. He's a perfect example of like what you want to tell your kid to be when he grows up. 
doesn't drink, doesn't smoke, never did, you know, uh, very driven when he was um, working on the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. You know, if he was in his trailer, he was also working on his music at the same time. He was always working and always positive. I mean, when he greets you, he greets you with a hug. You know, it was just that that energy. There's a reason why certain people are successful. You know, you're you're a manager. I always say, I think talent is almost a given, you know, and maybe it is 10% of the equation because there's a lot of people who are more talented than the people who make it, you know, but what these other people have is they have a certain persistence, they have a certain attitude, and there's something about them. They're not self-destructive. They, they, they know how to do the right things to move things forward. And he is just one of those guys. I mean, he, he is extremely talented, but he's just got the light when you meet that guy. You feel good being around him. Agreed. Uh, your biggest disappointment in show business and how you turned it into a positive. Well, that is, you know, that I'm going to tell you one of my biggest disappointments that wasn't really about me, okay, but it was about a client. But a little known fact, and then we could talk about me after, but a little, little known fact, Billy Idol was supposed to be the Terminator in Terminator 2, the new Terminator. And I got him that role. Mario Casar. That was Mario, but I got it, you know, directly with Jim Cameron on a plane to Cannes. Uh, courtesy of Mario, we were all flying on the same plane, and he loved the idea, you know, he had me read the script at his house, he was very protective of the script, you know, and met with Billy, everything was all done, we were doing this, and then Billy got into his motorcycle accident, and uh, he, he couldn't do it, because he, he shattered his leg, and you know, a lot of people don't know this, but like on that video, Rock the Cradle of Love, if you ever watch that, he's sitting down, like, you never see him uh, below the waist, you know? So I was, uh, that was a huge disappointment because I just saw that as, like, the moment where he was going to become a star in movies. It's amazing how one horrible thing happens for one person and opens the door for somebody else who becomes a huge star. Right, well, Robert Patrick got the role. But also, you know, he I had the Doors movie for him in a fairly large role. They kept him in Oliver Stone kept him in the movie, but gave him a small bit part where he you see him he's like on crutches, I think. And um, anyway, you know, in terms of disappointments for me, and there's been a lot of them, in a way. Uh, that, you know, there's always there's always ups and downs, and like you know, I do a lot of positive reading and you know adversity you have to embrace adversity as your best friend and just know that there's something else coming around the corner um you know when things didn't work out you know with the management company ultimately you know and it kind of you know was not the right blend of personalities and ended up selling my interest in it you know not really wanting to but feeling kind of like that was sort of the only way to move on um, and, and, and then I elected to pursue comedy time full time. Um, you know, I was always planning on comedy time being sort of an adjunct to the management company, but I think it really turned out to be a benefit, um, and a good thing because 
unless I jumped in up to my ears, I never could have accomplished what I accomplished with that in terms of the distribution footprint. And also in terms of the doors that opened, uh, in terms of what I'm doing now. I mean, uh, in addition to comedy time, I'm working with some really exciting companies in the digital landscape. The world has kind of caught up to me. You know, I was like back in 2004 when I'm doing this full time. And, you know, I started in 2002, but 2004 doing this full time. And it's like, it's like the pipes hadn't been built yet. So you're like in a Ferrari on a cul-de-sac, you know, there's like nowhere to go. You can't grow any faster than the medium. Um, but now, you know, I have a lot of friends in traditional media that are kind of in the weeds a little bit because they're, you know, the world has changed. Motion picture producer friends of mine are trying to reinvent themselves because movies aren't getting made. You know, people who represent on the motion picture side, a lot of people have had to adjust and try and get into the television game um, or into other things. You know, some people out of the business entirely. And so I feel like what I did and when I did it um, was the education I needed to take me on the path to, to not be obsolete, to actually be current in terms of what's going on right now. So that's probably my biggest example. Your proudest moment in show business. Wow, that's um, that's a really, really good question. And um, I would say that my proudest moment was probably, boy, there's been there's been a number of proud moments, but I think it was, you know, and and, and a lot of times it's like so much about external validation. Uh, you know, I've had, I was very proud of the deal I negotiated for Rennie in terms of, you know, Rennie Harlan. Rennie Harlan breaking the ceiling on director's salaries in this business because, you know, you always think you're not good enough. There's some guy who's better, you know. I always looked at Jack Rapke at CA and I think, God, I want his client list. You know, he's got bigger clients than I do, uh, you know, but. It was sort of a validation to make a killer deal and everybody's talking about that all of a sudden set, sets the business uh, on its ear, you know, and disrupts. You know, that, that was really great. Um, I've also gotten, like, some of my proud moments. My proudest moment is, like, when I create something. So, for example, when I produce some of the shows I produced on Comedy Time, the series, uh, and they turn out well. Like we did, um, we did a show with Chelsea Handler called Inappropriate Boss that was Horrible Bosses before Horrible Bosses. It was way before. It was done in like 2005. You know, things like that um, really make me proud when I look at the film and I go, wow, this is really good. You know, or I can sit in a room with my traditional entertainment contemporaries at like an HBO and show it to them, and, and this and, and other stuff as well. I'm just using that as an example. And go, wow, this stuff's really funny. Have you thought about turning this into a television series? You know, those are proud moments. Fantastic. Final question. You work with so many different executives, agents, people on the other side of the camera, directors, writers. What advice do you have for the young performer who's just starting out? Or he might be in the business or she, but they're, you know, trying to figure out their way. And also the young agent or young executive or young manager who's trying to work their way through the weeds and all the different people ahead of them to get to the highest levels like you've been. 
I would say just just keep your own side of the street clean. Just focus on doing what you're doing without comparing yourself to everybody else because cream always rises to the top. Just do the very best you can and don't give up. Stick with your vision, even if it doesn't seem like it's happening fast enough. It never happens fast enough for any of us. And just stick with it, you know, if you do, you will get the prize. But if you start just sort of getting distracted and having a pity party, you're not going to get there. It's just wasted energy. David Goldman, your advice? Sound incredible, like oak. I'm so... (laughs) (laughs) You're going to take my advice, Perry. (laughs) I am going to take your advice. I'm going to stay the course. I'm going to give this industry standard uh, another go. I was going to quit after this show, but now I'm going to keep going. I'm happy to hear that. It's a great show, and I appreciate you letting me be a part of it. I appreciate you. Thank you so much. This is Barry Katz for another episode of Industry Standard. And if you like the show, please tell all your friends. And if you didn't like the show, tell all your friends. They say it's the glory I'll scream your name Put you on shoulders Walk you to fame You'll get all the money Drive that fancy car All the people love you Cause you're going far Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over So it all feels the same Pick your own poison, dig your own grave down in the valley. A fortune. Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.